This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Riley. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Lots of people are wondering and worrying about how generative AI will affect their jobs. McKinsey senior partner Quaylen Ellingrud understands, and she's choosing to look at the bright side. The good news, the silver lining of all of this is we actually will have more jobs in the future than we do today, given demographic trends, given consumption trends, uh, GDP growth. Quaylen joins me and McKinsey partner Saurabh Songvi to explore the future of work and generative AI's role in it. Will it disrupt our lives? Will it enhance our lives? They say it could do both. After Joanne Lipman, author of Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work, understands how difficult transitions can be and talks about the four steps people go through when making a big change. It's from our author talk series. Quaylen, Saurabh, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So the McKinsey Global Institute recently released a report on generative AI and the future of work in America, and it touches on a range of topics, including post-pandemic trends in the labor market and the impact of generative AI on the workforce, which is a curiosity and a concern for everyone on the planet right now. But before we dive into the findings, I wanted to ask why this report and why now? two things. One is COVID. We're emerging from three years of COVID where there has been so much turmoil and change in the workforce. And the other thing is generative AI that burst onto the scene, you know, six months ago or so. And that has also changed work and jobs across the entire spectrum. And so those two things together inspired us to say, what's different now? And as we look ahead to where the puck is going in terms of jobs, what can we expect in the future? Saurabh, did you have anything to add there? I would just underscore the labor market looks different than what we've typically seen. And we think some of that has to do with the pandemic and some of that has to do with workers' needs and preferences changing. We're seeing all kinds of unprecedented technical change, even beyond generative AI. And even if we go a step further, we're seeing things like record level federal investment in things like infrastructure, in things like net zero. And so the point that I would underscore is this confluence of factors is really one of the big things that we wanted to really cover with this new piece around the future of work in generative AI. Are pandemic-era labor shortages here to stay? Yeah. You know, right now, coming out of the pandemic, we have uh, two job openings for every person who's unemployed. So we're, we're quite out of balance compared to previous years. Uh, we do think that a tight labor market will persist. I don't think it will be quite as tight as it was uh, maybe a year ago as we were emerging. But I think that some of the long-term trends of uh, people really looking for greater flexibility in their work, looking for greater control over their career and how that evolves, and looking for greater meaning and connectivity in their jobs and workplaces. I think a lot of those trends that were really accelerated during the pandemic, some of those will continue to persist. Which occupational categories have been most affected during the pandemic era? Which are growing and which are declining? 
I think there's a number of occupations that are growing. Uh, those would be a lot of the healthcare jobs, STEM jobs, transportation jobs, delivery. And then there's a lot of shrinking occupations. And I think 80% of the occupational transitions that we can expect over the next seven years between now and the end of 2030 are in four occupational categories. And that's customer service, food service, production or manufacturing. And those four occupations are going to need a lot of reskilling, upskilling, and support to encourage those workers to gain the skills so that they can repot in other occupations that are growing in our economy. What I'd add there is, you know, we're starting to see a, a steady rise and rebound. And this includes things like builders, educators, the creative economy, And some of that has been from federal infrastructure. When we start talking about builders and and construction, a lot of that has been from major infrastructure bills that have been motivating and incentivizing infrastructure. But, you know, the other one that I'd want to underscore is the the educator one, where the pandemic really uh, put a a structural hit on, on how we thought about education but now we're, we're going back to the long-term historical trend of the fact that we need a lot more educators at, at all levels. But then when you add automation and the specter of Gen AI to the mix, what can we say about the, the direct impact of Gen AI on the labor market? The impact of Gen AI alone um, actually could automate almost 10% of tasks in the U.S. economy. And that affects all spectrums of jobs. It is much more concentrated on lower wage jobs, so jobs earning less than 38000 In fact, if you're in one of those jobs, you are 14 times more likely to lose your job or need to transition to another occupation than those with wages you know, in the higher range above 58000 for example. But it also does affect... Uh, the jobs on the higher end of the wage range. So writers, right, creatives, lawyers, consultants, everybody is going to need to work differently because parts of our job will be affected by Gen AI. But for some, it will be a much more fundamental uh, elimination of the job and others, it will more remake how we spend our time. It is quite a significant number and, and, and sort of frightening to think of in a way, but also I know there are a lot of great opportunities associated with Gen AI. When we were talking about the impact on lower wage workers in particular, what are the mechanisms, I guess, by which we can ensure that that there is a kind of a, a way to ladder up? Absolutely. 12 million occupational transitions are likely going to need to happen between now and 2030, right? With the 80% of those in those four occupations that I mentioned, customer service, food service, production, and office support. How do we make sure that workers in those jobs can reskill and upskill. I think a lot of that depends on individual companies to do that at scale, not in the hundreds, but in the thousands of workers. I think public-private partnerships between the federal government and educational institutions could help kind of train and um, build the skills of our workforce so that our workforce of the future has the skills that we need. And then I think as employers shift in their hiring to more skills-based hiring, so they're looking for the skills that they need as opposed to credentials, I think that will help as well. I think the good news, the silver lining of all of this is we actually will have more jobs in the future than we do today, given 
demographic trends, given consumption trends, uh, GDP growth. And on average, those jobs will be higher paying jobs, but require higher levels of education. So how do we reskill and upskill at scale to ensure that our workers can be the right fit for those jobs of the future? So Quinlan, I like the, the positive outlook. I think it's what we all need. I am curious though, how do we ensure that the future of work doesn't exclude traditionally disadvantaged groups? It's a great question because um, it is a danger. And if left unmanaged, it will affect right lower wage workers more. Uh, it will affect people of color more. It will affect women more. For instance, women are about 50% more likely to be in one of those occupations that needs to transition uh, compared to men. And so I think how we make sure that we support is um, to target that reskilling and upskilling. Uh, there are certain programs that can help identify if you are in a customer service and sales role, right? What are the career paths that could build on those skills to help you ladder up and maybe reskill and upskill it in a targeted way to find that next job? I think federal programs could help as well. For example, on the infrastructure um, investments, we saw that contracts would be awarded to companies that provide childcare, for instance. And that will also help be more inclusive to working mothers in the jobs and the job creation as construction has at least historically been quite male and quite white. Uh, but with all the infrastructure investment, a lot of the jobs created there can now be more equal uh, in terms of, you know, where the job growth goes. We really need intentional focus. And as we think about the, the solution space, if you look in the, the higher ed sector, for example, um, the ability to, to work with HBCUs is a great way to really help, you know, black learners, for example, get into these high wage, high growth pathways and some of the occupations that we're highlighting. Um, similarly, when we think about some of the workforce development programs, there's a lot of investment that's going into new regions that haven't really had vibrant innovation hubs. Investments like that can really help create some of these opportunities in the geographies that typically haven't had all of the job growth previously. How should employers think about the data in this report in terms of upskilling, reskilling? There's a huge role that employers can play in this. And maybe what I can start with is, is just a few specific examples. So I think, first of all, really thinking about how can we hire for skills? And so instead of looking at necessarily someone's degree or the prerequisite of what job category they, they previously you know, were playing, the, the second thing is there's a real opportunity to think about pipelines and pathways. So everybody is learning about these new technologies. Everybody needs to, to upskill. And so companies can really lean forward to start thinking about, hey, if someone is really thinking about becoming a marketing manager, instead of me only looking at hiring someone from the outside for that role, what are pathways within my own company to help someone maybe in a role that will have less demand to help them move into a role that has more of a demand. And actually that would be probably far more cost efficient because you already have the human capital. And then the last thing that I would say is, even if we think a little beyond generative AI, what we're seeing is that workers are demanding a new style and way of working. And so we think that the other thing that's gonna be really important 
is can employers really design new ways of working and working models that can be more flexible, that can uh, really take advantage of in-person moments as well as remote moments? And can that be done in a way that actually becomes more inclusive and attractive to potentially women workers, to potentially adult workers that are working both at work, but also maybe working on a part-time you know, college course at the same time? You know, the report notes the role of the federal government in investing in infrastructure renewal and initiatives to achieve net zero climate goals. What impact could this have on the labor market? We think that this is going to be a a tremendous opportunity for job growth. But similar to some of the things that we've talked about around automation and AI, it will require quite a bit of transitions, where ultimately what we will see is that there will be some labor demand declines in in jobs that relate to the oil and gas industry and labor demand increases in things that we would call greener jobs um, around renewable energy, around things like solar and and wind and the entire infrastructure around that. And the key thing that's going to need to happen is how do we help workers transition from categories that are potentially declining to those greener jobs? And how do we think about upskilling in those greener jobs? The infrastructure story is a a little simpler to understand where a lot of the investments that the the federal government has been making, which in many ways are, are record level investments. And this is really going towards construction, building, repairing a lot of the U.S.'s infrastructure when it comes to roads, bridges, and and other things like that. And so the the big area that this is going to directly impact is the construction sector. And one of the big opportunities there is that's a sector that has typically been quite male-dominated. And so there are significant opportunities to think about how can we expand those opportunities to women. And similarly, it's also a sector that um, isn't very diverse if we look at it from a a race and ethnicity standpoint. And so another opportunity is how can we expand opportunities there for people of color as well? Agreed, Sarab. And I think on the net zero side, we see a net increase of around 700,000 jobs, but that is a lot of displacement uh, in the mix, right? So it's actually... Uh, displacing about 3.5 million jobs uh, that either directly or indirectly would be eliminated. And then there are gains in renewable energy and other areas of over 4 million jobs. But that's a lot of both displacement and then net new job creation. So a lot of disruption in the workplace, uh, in the overall job economy for that net creation of 700,000 jobs. But hopefully that will be a huge growth driver in the future. I'm already thinking that as a female podcast host and editor, I should start thinking about a shift into the construction sector or other some of these (laughs) other opportunities that you're citing. I mean, when you think about the fact that there could be that many new green jobs, we think that, you know, there's a huge opportunity in the country to really start even marketing the fact that you know, there's an entire sector of jobs that students and adult workers can be getting into, you know, that, that's a huge opportunity. And if you start thinking about the next generation of student 
that wants to be more mission driven and cares about the purpose of their job, there's a, a tremendous opportunity to connect those two things and to say, hey, if you want to save the planet, look at these 4 million jobs that are out there. And I think as we look over time, about 9 or 10% of the jobs every decade are net new occupations that didn't exist before. So that could be in advanced analytics, that could be in renewable energy, as we were just describing, or social media influencer. And how do we think about these new jobs, the skills that they will need? Uh, Those new jobs have at least historically typically been more male dominated than female dominated. But how do we build the skills that we'll need in the future, both for the jobs we know we will need, but also for the net new occupations that we haven't even imagined yet. We've talked about the impact of the pandemic. We've talked about the impact of generative AI. We've talked about the impact of climate change, infrastructure, renewal, those opportunities. Are there any other forces cited in the reporter that we that we are thinking about otherwise that could affect the labor market in the next two to five years? So I think some of the other factors that we'd love to highlight uh, in terms of major changes that are impacting the labor market are One, the fact that we have an aging workforce. And so that's impacting everything as it relates to retirements and the fact that we've seen quit rates at a all-time high over the last two years, but also in terms of the demand for healthcare um, as we think about what's needed for for the population of, of the U.S. And then another one that was probably my my favorite finding of this report is is that over the last three years, we've seen 50% more occupation transitions than the previous three years. And this is really positive news in my mind, where what we're seeing is that there's occupation transitions resulting in workers disproportionately being in higher wage roles. And if we could continue that, and if we could think about that trend continuing over the next decade and through 2030, then we could be in a world where some of the disruptions that we're talking about end up being really positive and really help workers get into uh, higher wage roles, opportunities for more fulfilling careers. And for the first time ever, we have real hard evidence that it's actually happening and happening at a, at a scale that's faster than what we've previously seen. I think one other element in terms of our workforce is that immigration has been quite low for an extended period. And so as we combine the higher quit rates uh, with early retirements due to health and other concerns and then lower immigration, all of these things are exacerbating the talent shortage that we were describing earlier, leading to right 2x the number of job openings for every unemployed person. And each one of those things on its own would be challenging, but when you combine it all together, it's it's a very challenging job market for employers more, more than employees. For both of you, Quaylen and, and Sarb, what was the most surprising finding from this research? The finding that shocked me most was that people in lower wage jobs below 38,000 a year were 14 times more likely to need to transition occupations than those in the highest wage jobs. I thought that it would be more egalitarian in the impact of automation and generative AI. I knew it would have a bit of a disproportionate effect, but 14 times was really quite stunning to me. Definitely. As Quaylen mentioned earlier, our overall automation 
number in the midpoint scenario went from 21% of activities being able to be automated to 29% of activities being able to be automated. But I think one of the really surprising parts that's not being covered is the number before Gen AI was 21%. And that 21% is actually impacting our findings more than some of the, the recent increase from the generative AI. And so when we think about other technologies like um, robotics, you know, kiosks that are coming into the fast food sector, a lot of those technologies, in fact, are having more of an impact on a lot of these sectors. And that's driving why we're seeing a disproportionate impact on the, the low wage workers. And so I, I think the, the key thing for me is we absolutely need to be thinking about generative AI and its profound impacts, but it's an and, not the only focus. We also need to be thinking about the implications of all the other technologies too. If there are one message or one, or sort of one silver lining that you could that you could share with our listeners, what would that be? Looking at the upside, looking at the increasing number of jobs, higher wages over time. Yes, there are a lot of occupational switches that we'll need to transition through, a lot of upskilling and reskilling at scale. But the GDP growth, the upside, the more jobs at higher wages gives me a lot of comfort that there's a better future as we get through that tumultuous uh, and challenging transition period. Yeah, I would add one point that I think all too often, as we talk about AI and generative AI, we jump to the conclusion of job loss. And one of the findings from our report is that it's much more a story of augmentation. And to just to highlight that, if we take the role of a teacher, for example, teachers are some of our most overworked workers today in the in the country. And if you look at all of the activities that teachers are working on, there are a number of things that they're doing that are not student facing, that are just administrative. And so I think the the huge kind of potential for this technology is how can we help augment professions and help free up time so that it can then be repurposed in the case of a teacher that would then be allowing them to spend more time directly with students to help improve student outcomes. And that's just one example, but it has a lot of analogs in other professions. Quaylen Sarb, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. If Gen AI frees up lots of your time, would you think about a life overhaul? Here's Joanne Lipman, author of Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work, who shares the four steps to make big change. These four steps, I call it the reinvention roadmap, four S's, search, struggle, stop, solution. So the first step, the search, is fascinating because this is when you are collecting information, collecting experiences. This is the stuff that is going to take you to your transition, to your reinvention, but you don't know it at the time. For career people, it could be, you know, maybe it's a side hustle or just a random interest, something you like to read about, a hobby. So that's the search. The second step is the struggle. Now the struggle is where you have disconnected or you're starting to disconnect from that previous identity, but you have not figured out where you are going. When we tell these reinvention stories about people who have had these amazing transformations, we tend to skip over this part, the struggle. 
but it's incredibly important. We all go through it, and this is where all the important work gets done. The struggle often doesn't end until you hit a stop. That's the third step: the stop. The stop might be something that you initiate, like for example, I quit my job, right? But it may be something that is imposed on you. So, for example, it could be you lose your job, or it could be a trauma like a, a divorce or an illness in the family. Or a pandemic, whatever it is, it stops you in your tracks, and only then are you really able to synthesize all of these experiences. It all coalesces into what leads you to your solution, solution, which is the final reinvention step. But there are two really、um, important myths. This Cinderella myth. The idea that transformation is abrupt and instant. The second myth that I think is incredibly damaging, honestly, is this idea that you have to have an absolute plan of where you want to go. That is very good advice if you really know that you want to be an oral surgeon. But for so many of the people who I interviewed, it was the reverse. They didn't know where they were going. They had no idea, and I found that to be really empowering. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili, and I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly, and check out the McKinsey Insights app, where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.